Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Adi. This week, we continue our series over the Gospel of John. Enjoy. Let's see how long has it been since we've been together. Six months? Nine months? Gosh, it just feels like forever. The uh, experiment of the... uh, third service. What'd you think of that third service? I know I don't think anybody in this group liked it because we had to give up Sunday school. So it was a worthy sacrifice. Okay. It was a very nice thing to do. And I have to admit that there were some people that came to that, to the middle service that um, were very mass conscious and they weren't people that normally came to either the early or the late. We did have some uh, worshiper distribution, you know, sort of movement from from the early service to the middle and from the late to the to the middle. So maybe the timing of that had something to do with it. But uh, anyway, it was a good thing to do. And uh, now we're back together to finish John. Okay, so so here's the thing we're going to do today because you know how it always works is um, whether we finish John or not, we're finished with John. Okay. All right. So that what that means is, is this, that what you have printed in front of you takes us all the way to the end of John. Even if we only get to the first paragraph of the first page, we're still done with John. All right. But then here's, so here's what we'll we'll do with the, uh, uh, with our lesson schedule. Because originally I thought that we would start Revelation in January. And that was before that I knew we were going to do the experiment. So the experiment was as much a surprise for you as it was for me. So we're going to still do the reconciliation stuff. I want to do that in, uh, in January and then uh, in February, then we'll start the uh, revelation stuff. Does that sound like a good plan? Okay, well, we're going to do it anyway, even if you didn't think it was, if you didn't even think it was. All right. All right. So let's pick it up in our uh, uh, final part of the gospel, John. For, uh, for today, and where we are in, in, in starting in verse 10 of chapter 21, we have to kind of give a little sense of context in terms of what has already happened. So we know the big story of what, Jesus, what has already happened is Jesus has risen from the grave. He's, he's in his, his glorified state now. And how we know it's a glorified state is because what that means is he no longer is, is using locked doors to, to get unlocked in order for him to move from place to place. And the book of Acts talks about this too, that after his resurrection, Jesus was going everywhere, appearing to large groups of people at one time. The qualification being that he was only appearing to believers. And again, there's a certain irony in that. You know, you would think that that his appearing to unbelievers would have made more sense from a public relations perspective than it would be to appear only to believers. Because if believers already believed, then what would be the merit or the value of showing up to believers if they already believe? Why not show up to unbelievers? Because if there ever would be anything in our minds that would convince unbelievers to become believers, it would be the resurrected Lord standing there in front of them, shaking hands and showing the place where he was wounded. But if you think about it from God's perspective, why go through all the effort to show up to believers? Why do that? 
That's exactly right. It was, see, from a witness perspective, Jesus knew I'm going to ascend to heaven. Yes, I'll send my Holy Spirit, but guess what? He's invisible. So how will the word and the message of the gospel go from this local area in terms of Jerusalem? How's it going to get out to the rest of the world? It's only going to happen by virtue of people who are believers who are sharing the word. They're the ones that are going to take the word. And so they're the ones who have to be able to have some credibility and some integrity in the witness where they can say, we saw him alive, then we saw him die, and then we saw him again when he rose again. And the fact that we saw that and we were with him gives to us the integrity and the credibility of our message. And so again, it, you know, from God's perspective, that's, it always reminds us that, that God's viewpoint and the way God does what he does, it doesn't always jive with the way that we think it ought to be or the way we would do it. And I'm sure there's none of us here this morning who have ever thought that. You know, why, didn't, why doesn't God do it this way instead of, you know, that way? But again, he's looking at the bigger picture, and he's looking at it from the perspective of what he's going to compel us to do, which is to be part of, the, part of that mission. Yes, it would be a lot easier if angels did it. Okay, be a whole lot easier if the Holy Spirit would just, you know, zap people, you know, without uh, humans being involved in that. But that's not the way he does it. Okay, that's not the way he does it. So what has happened up to this point is that the disciples are standing around kind of waiting for the next thing that Jesus is, is going to do. And he hadn't showed up yet. And so Peter says, I'm going fishing. That is one of the most profound verses in the whole Bible. I love that. You know, Peter goes, oh, I don't know what else to do. I'm going to go fishing. Okay, it makes perfect sense. He was a fisherman, and I want to go back to my roots. I want to do the thing. And maybe he was just hungry, wanted fish, you know, oh, who knows. But anyway, he says, I'm going fishing. And so they go out in the boat, and they fish all night. And what is the result of their fishing all night? Nada. They don't catch a thing. All right. So they're they're dragging themselves into the shore and there's a stranger on the shore. We know it's Jesus, but it's a stranger to them because maybe it's too dark. And he says, hey, did you catch anything? And of course they go, no. And so then he said, what? Throw your net on the other side of the boat and let's see what happens. Now, what I find so interesting is these guys are professional fishermen. Have you ever been a professional at something and then had some strange stranger or some person you don't know come up to you and make a suggestion to you about how you could do the thing that you do professionally better? Have you ever had that? Have you ever had that? Yeah. Ever since we started doing um, live streaming our services, we've had all kinds of experts from afar <laughs> who have given us lots of advice and lots of scrutiny about how uh, we could do what we do better. And so it's very difficult to remain gracious in those moments, as I would imagine that Jesus' disciples thought, you know, what the heck does this guy know? We are the professional fishermen. But here's the thing. When you strike out, you're probably a little bit more desperate and perhaps you're even willing to listen to what somebody says, even if you think there's no way that that guy could be right. So what do they do? They throw the net out on the other side, and what happens? 
it's like all these fish swim into the net, you know. I mean, that, literally, that's kind of what's, what it is. It's all, it isn't like they were just doing their normal netting thing uh, with the boats and all that. The, the literally giant uh, catch of giant fish and big fish and also in, in number. And so then what happens is it dawns on Peter that this is a miracle. And so Peter looks at the other guys and says, it's the Lord. And what does Peter do in his usual uh, think about it before you do it sort of way? He gathers up himself and he jumps into the water and he leaves the other guys. Don't you love that? Yeah. He, he leaves the other guys and he, he dashes to the shore or slogs to the, to the shore. And there he sees that it's Jesus. And that's where we pick it up right here in verse 10. Okay. So we look at verse 10 to 14. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. So Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So let's think about this from the perspective of how many miracles occurred in this one episode. So first of all, the first miracle was that they caught all this fish in the wrong time of the day. See, the normal time to catch the fish was at night when the fish would come into the shallows to feed. That's why they, were, uh, they had been fishing that way. So catching fish on the wrong time of day. Number two, catching fish on the wrong side of the boat. The normal thing was to catch them in the shallows. And here Jesus had said, throw the, the net out into the deep side. Catching an unheard of number of fish. Apparently 153 was even a, a, quite a stretch uh, in, in the, their minds. And then the nets didn't break. You know, these nets were in constant need of repair. If you've ever seen, uh, I mean, fishermen in general who fish with nets, but even, even guys that fish with rod and reel, that's a constant maintenance kind of thing, isn't it? And nobody expects to catch uh, that many. And you sort of get the sense, you know, in verse uh, 11 where it says it was full of large fish. These were bigger than sardines. You know, you sort of get the sense that they were accustomed to catching like little six-inchers. Anybody know what smelt are? Any of you that are from Michigan or up, up north, you know what smelt are? Smelt are about that big. And that's kind of the size of sardines, sort of. But these would have been maybe like bass or, you know, I don't know what it, I don't know what, we'll have to look up sometime the uh, fishery makeup of the Sea of Galilee. Do they have like largemouth bass and do they have catfish and, you know, you know, carp. I don't know. You know, we'll have to see. All right. So anyway, here's the deal. The question is, what was Jesus's point? What's the point of doing all this with them? It's the third time he appeared. What was the first time he appeared? Behind the locked doors. Everybody was there but Thomas. Okay. Second time he appeared was with Thomas. Same thing. And now this is the third time. What's the point? More evidence that he is still alive yeah. and he eats with them too. Yeah, which we're going to talk about why that's so important. It's it, it, he knew that they would really need that confidence when they went out into an unbelieving world, part of which 
because it was Greek, did not believe in the idea of that a, a physical body could come back to rise again. He must have looked a little different than after his glorified body or after he rose. The question is, did Jesus look different? Well, they were having trouble. It seems like they had trouble recognizing him. Well, I think part of it is, you know, how hard is it to convince a man <laughs> when the man makes up his mind that something is a certain way? How hard is it to do that? Just thinking of the male brain and kind of the way that that brain works is very one-track mind. You know, a guy says, we saw him, go, we saw him die, we saw him go in the grave, we saw that. It's just, you know, hard to get your brain wrapped around some things. And there's no indication in the Bible that women had any difficulty believing in the resurrection. Right? I mean, who did Jesus appear to first and give to her the, uh, the message to go and tell Peter and the disciples? Mary, Mary Magdalene, yeah. See, she, he did, she didn't need to be convinced three times. So I think I would, I would lend it to that right there. Okay, but again, notice no, none of the disciples dared what? Ask him what? Who are you, right? They, they got it, all right? They got it. It's the same Jesus. It's the same Jesus. It's the same Jesus. Somebody had their hand up. Yeah, Mary. I think it's important to note that he hosted breakfast. He was once again demonstrating a servant's heart. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, there's another, there's another aspect to this, which is, they caught all the fish. So where did the fish come from that he had on the grill when he said, you know, there's the bread and the fish, and, and, then, and then he says, bring, bring some fish with you. But there was already fish there. That's what the previous uh, reading in John says. So Jesus, who didn't know anything about fishing per se, was able to just like that, and here comes a fish, jumped right out of the water onto the grill, and uh, he was able to share that. So that's, yeah. Thought, any other? Yeah. Richard. Back to your question about the miracles. Yeah. What strikes me is that I think the message is witnessing breaks all the norms of persuasion. That is so profound what you just said. So uh, witnessing breaks all the norms of persuasion. Okay. They're excellent point. Do you want to say more about that or just... <clears throat> We're not selling Jesus. Right. Okay. Yeah. And I think, that, I mean, I've never, I've never picked up on all the fact that of those four miracles. Mm-hmm. But your question, plus the point, yeah. is that witnessing will, will get results when you least expect it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, I guess, which is in a way kind of a rebuke of all that we've been hearing for the last, you know, the four spiritual laws and mm-hmm. this and this and trying to package our faith into a used car presentation. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think we, we put that kind of pressure on ourselves in the sense of saying, until my messaging is perfect or is super correct or whatever, that then there's no way that I can do it. And I think that what you're saying, by, by again, what you said, is that um, we've, 
when we do that, it's okay to get your story down if you want to say it from that perspective. But sometimes what we end up doing is negating the role of the Holy Spirit to change hearts. And we think, well, if I just say it the right way and use the right words and, you know, if I do it enough and if I'm, you know, have enough, you know, smile on my face and all the stuff that we would think externally is important or that really matters, then we kind of negate the power of the Holy Spirit, who at the end of the day is the one who's changing people's hearts. And I think sometimes we base that on the fact that we don't always see the immediate results that we think ought to be there, right? Well, I witnessed to you six times. I mean, come on. You know, I mean, I mean, we get a little impatient that way. And we think that, that if the gospel truly is present in people's lives or if it's truly present in, in the world today, then by golly, the world ought to be a better place to live, right? I mean, I think that's, I think that's in the thinking of a lot of people. And, and well, what if the world isn't a better place? What if people aren't nicer to each other? You know, when we get into talking, when we get into the book of Revelation uh, uh, three or four months from now, um, <laughs> that, uh, and we talk about end times, a lot of the emphasis that people today have on the end times is they want to feel like that we can predict certain things. Well, what happens if you can't predict it? What do you do? What does that mean about your faith? See, see it, it's still, you still end up with the power of the gospel doing what it does oftentimes in hidden ways. The Bible talks about that a lot, that it, Christ is hidden. And, and so because of that, having faith means that I walk by faith, not by sight. In other words, I walk by faith, trusting in God's promises, even if I do not see the evidence of that faith working in people's lives or the evidence of that faith making a difference in changing the world. Because the world has a mind of its own, Right? And for the most part, that the mind that the world has is going to be resistant to what the gospel offers instead of being receptive to it. And that's one of the struggles that we have as Christians. That's part of why I think a ministry of encouragement with each other is really critical because you can get discouraged. You know, you witness, 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 pray, 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 worship, worship, worship. You do all those things in your life and you think, yeah, but still my neighbor is still a jerk to me. You know, and you think, what's the point of doing that? Well, that's when we need the encouragement of each other to say, no, hang in there, hang in there. This is, this is, part, of the, uh, this is part of the struggle. And it's worth it because of God's promises to us in Jesus. Okay? So it's kind of, it's kind of thinking about that, it that way. All right, so let's look at verse 15. When they had finished eating. Okay, the eating part really, as some of you pointed out, is a real critical piece to this. It was critical that Jesus eat with them to confirm the fact that he wasn't just this sort of hologram version of himself when he came back from, uh, came back from the dead. That it really was the human nature and the divine nature are there together in this person, Jesus, and that this state in resurrection was a physical body as well as a spiritual body. And that what that does for us is it points us to our own resurrection someday, 
that when we then through judgment day go to heaven or to hell, wherever it is, that there will be a spiritual body and a physical body associated with that. So there's a couple of verses here for us to, to, uh, to be reminded of. Philippians 3, 20 to 21. But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. The Greek word there for body is stoma, S-T-O-M-A, stoma. Should remind you of an English word, stomach, stomach right? Okay. And so it, it reminds us that there is a physicality to Jesus's resurrection in the same way that there will be a physicality to our resurrection uh, at, uh, at judgment day. All right. First Corinthians 15 uh, reinforces that he says, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown, that's when we die is perishable. It is raised. How imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural stoma. It is raised a spiritual stoma. Now, the reason why that was important for Paul to talk about that in Philippians as well as in Corinthians is because the Greeks, uh, the Greek philosophers had pronounced that everything that had to do with the spirit was good and everything that uh, was of a material basis was evil. And so that's why they, they said, well, then if, if God is only good, then God would be spirit. He wouldn't be physical. He wouldn't have a, there wouldn't be a material sense to him. And so therefore, when it comes to the resurrection, then that means that we would be resurrected in a spiritual way because that's good, but we would not be resurrected in a physical way because that would be evil. Can you see the logic? And so that's a good example of where the Greek philosophers and then Christians who themselves were Greek and had been steeped in that perspective there, what they were attempting to do was impose their own perspective on the biblical narrative. And what Paul is saying is, no, the biblical narrative will uh, negate that, that Greek uh, perspective, that Greek philosophy. All right. So the, the joy of that is knowing that when the resurrection comes for us is that we will have the characteristics of the physical body, but there won't be the limitations. You know, limitations right now are you age. Does anyone here doubt that? Okay, you age. All right. Well, but when eternity starts, time disappears and there will be no aging. Now, somebody always likes to ask the question, well, so what will you look like? Do you think that you'll look like yourself when you get to heaven? Or do you think that we'll all look like generic the same? What do you think? I mean, the Bible doesn't really like say it, but I'm just curious what you think. Do you like everything about yourself right now? <laughs> yeah, I kind of like myself, you know, I mean, I kind of do. But there are some things about you that people would say, oh, yeah, that's her. Oh, yeah, that's him. Right. Just the same as they did with Jesus. Right. But uh, we always we part of it is we don't know. And so it's kind of fun to think about what that might be. Right. But again, the idea is, is that if you think about the fact that God creates 
And God is interested in uniqueness and diversity and all kinds of differences in people now. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't we be thinking of that in terms of eternity? That some people think that heaven will be like another remake of the Garden of Eden. And so you think about all the varieties of the different fruits and trees and animals and all that kind of stuff that would have been in the garden. Why not think of that from a, from a heavenly perspective as well, including us as human beings. So when we get there, we'll be, we'll know better than we know now. All right. So let's look at uh, also in first Corinthians 15, 48 to 49. If you look at the next page, he says, as was the earthly man, so are those of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so are those of the heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. So again, it gets to this idea that in the same sense that Jesus had his appearance, he had his, he had, remember he had the marks and I mean, there were, there were things that, that had indicated, were indicators of his life on earth. Why not take that perspective as well in terms of what, uh, what we will look like or what we will be like uh, into eternity. But here's the thing. The new body that we have will be built for eternity. That will be a blessing to believers. It'll be a curse to unbelievers. Why? Have you ever been, like think of the best vacation you ever were on. And you said to yourself, oh, I just wish this would last forever. Right? Now think of the worst experience you've ever had in your life. And you say to yourself, oh, I cannot stand this one more second. That's the difference. People in hell will wish they could die. And they won't be able to. People in heaven will be so glad that there's no possibility they could. And that's the difference. Okay? So the belief is a big part of this, right? Okay. Now we get to the, the real crooks of the story. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things and you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Jesus is singling out Peter now. So they finished eating. The great miracle, Peter goes, it's the Lord. They're all convinced. Nobody's going to ask him anything. But there's something yet to be done. And what is that? Peter needs to know that he's forgiven. 
Now, why particularly Peter and not all the disciples? Because when you think about all the disciples, they abandoned Jesus too, right? At the garden, the soldiers come, take Jesus away, boom, they all disappear. So why Peter? Yeah. Didn't Peter deny him? He did. He did. And the denial seems to be a, a different kind of thing than we just abandon Jesus because we're all freaking out that this is happening. I mean, that would be bad enough. Okay, that is bad. But you sort of get the sense that the verbal denial seems to be a bigger thing than just the fact that the other guys ran away and then you didn't see him again until, until the resurrection. Again, not to make too much of this. The other part of it is, is that I suspect that Jesus knew that Peter would play a pivotal role in the witnessing that would go on. And how in the world was Peter going to do that if he, was still, if he was still carrying the burden of what he had done in the verbal denial of even knowing Jesus, right? And so Jesus singles Peter out. Maybe again, it was part of the fact that he also was making his point to the rest of the disciples. So what he does is three times he asks, he asks Peter, do you love me? Now it's interesting, the little uh, differences in the Greek words that are used here for the word love. So the, the first time that Jesus asked, do you love me? He uses the word agape. And the word agape is, is a word that describes an unconditional nature of love. It's a deep intimate, connective kind of love. It's most often used to describe the kind of loving and the kind of love that God has for us, right? That, that sort of agape love. It, there, is a, there is very often the idea that because God agapes us, then the hope and the prayer is that we will agape each other, Right? But the Greeks had different words for love. And so one of the words that, that's also used for love is the word philo, P-H-I-L-O. And so when Jesus says, do you love me? Do you agape me? Then what Peter says is, yes, Lord, you know that I philo you. So philo is, is, is not, the, I mean, that's not an insignificant love either. It's a deep friendship. It's, a, it's an affection. It's a... It's a relationship thing, but it's not necessarily unconditional. In other words, it's not necessarily, it's sort of like if you feel oh me, then I feel oh you. It's a, there's a mutuality to it. But with agape, it's uh, if you agape me, well, what if I don't agape you? You still agape me. I mean, see, that's, that's, the, that's the nature of it. That's the difference between the two. And so I don't know necessarily if Peter is dodging it, you know, I don't know. That's, it's hard to read Peter's mind at this moment and say, well, was he like not wanting to commit himself as fully to agape as Jesus was? I, we don't get that indication here. The indication we get is, is that uh, up to this point, Peter is very aware of the burden of the guilt he feels. And that says to me a lot about the deep integrity of the guy. You know, in some sense, we do see that with Peter and then also with Paul. Remember, in a lot of Paul's writings in the New Testament, in the letters, he, he describes himself as one 
who is the least of all the apostles. In fact, I think that was in the reading this morning, in the uh, epistle reading, if I'm remembering back that far, right? It, that he describes himself that way. And why would, he, why would he describe himself as one who was the least of the apostles? Because he remembers what he did before he became converted, right? He was a, he was a ringleader. He was a, a muckety-muck in terms of the effort to eradicate Christianity, and so he, he remembered that, and he, I think in many ways, Paul still kind of struggled with the idea that God could love me, and then God could forgive me, and then God could actually recommission me to be a part of this new thing, this sharing the gospel. And how in the world could God do that, given the fact that here I was the guy that held everybody's coats while they throw rocks at Stephen and kill him? I mean, you know, how, how great is God's forgiveness there? And I think the same thing here is, uh, is applying to uh, Peter as well. So three times Jesus says, uh, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And then, and then uh, Peter goes, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And then what does Jesus say in the form of a recommissioning Peter to be uh, involved in the mission? He says what? Feed my lambs. Then he says, take care of my sheep. And then he says, feed my sheep. So what he's saying to Peter is you are going to be a pastor. You're going to be a pastor. I want you to pastor or pasture, right? Pasture my sheep. Now, there's a kind of a little nuanced difference here. Who might the lambs be? He says, the first thing he says is feed my, my lambs. And by the way, that you can make this little note. The English doesn't say it as much because it kind of sounds like a one-shot deal, feed my sheep, right? But the Greek says it with uh, the idea of a continued action. So it's sort of another way to say that would be keep on pasturing my sheep. Keep on doing it. Keep on doing it. Okay. There's no stopping to that. So who would, if you think about a flock, what, and the flock would be people, let's think of it that way, or just like sheep. What is the difference between caring for lambs versus caring for the adult sheep or the older sheep? What's the difference? Age, yes. Um, knowledge. So we might think of it in terms of the lambs as being those who are most vulnerable in the flock. So they could be the, the young ones, okay? The little bitties, children, okay? Uh, they also could be newbies in the faith, couldn't they? Yeah. Where newbies in the faith sometimes are filled with passion and zeal and I can't wait to get the word out to everybody. And I just know when I do, their lives will be changed and they'll be so happy with me. Right? And have you ever had someone in their zeal scrutinize you and have comment about you and maybe do it in a less than gracious way? Yes. Okay. Phil? Oh, you, are you volunteering, Phil, or are you, raising, are you asking oh, a question? Yeah, I mean, I, I have done that, and it has been done to me. <laughs> exactly. And so when that happens, you know, again, we, we think in terms of what does it mean then to pasture? What does it mean to, to be uh, patient with? I mean, see, there's a certain amount of, of putting up with that that a shepherd would do, right? 
and maybe would get tired of doing it, right? But that's part of the caring for that lamb, knowing that that lamb, as innocent as he or she is, will eventually become a sheep, and then that, would, that sheep would be uh, of benefit to the flock, okay? So I, I hope that you understand my, I'm talking a little bit uh, uh, in an abstract sort of way here, just so that no one gets their feelings hurt here today. All right. All right. All right. So he says, uh, he says, feed my, feed my lambs. Then he says, take care of my sheep. So the word take care, there's actually the word shepherd, shepherd my sheep. And then, uh, and then also the third time as well has to do with the feeding or the shepherding. Now, what do you make of this last part then where he's talking about Peter and says that, you know, when you were younger, basically you were in control of your life. But when you get older or when you are old, you're not in control of your life anymore. Are you seeing that message? How many of you are uh, well aware of that in your life right now? <laughs> Have you noticed that? Yeah. I think one of the things that uh, in many ways has been so such a struggle with COVID and all of the stuff that goes with it is it makes us realize how very little control we, I mean, we think we are totally in control and so independent and go where I want, do what I want, wear what I want, you know, the whole thing. And, and then we run into something like a pandemic and we realize that there's a whole lot that we think we're in control of that we're not. And even this issue of who gets to decide what you're going to wear and where, whether you're going to get to come to church, not come to church. I'm thinking, boy, do I, I sure am glad I live in Texas compared to some of my friends that are out in California who haven't had church at all, not gathered like we're doing since uh, sometime in March. And, and so this, this feeling of what it feels like when you, when you, it's kind of the American way. I, in some sense, it, for sure, Texan, to, to want to be that independent spirit that can, I can go where I want, and I can do what I want, and I can say what I want, and I can be what I want, and I can do it the way I want. And then you run into something that you can't control, and it reminds you, as maybe God often does, that um, <laughs> you're not, you know, as much in control as you think you are. And so that's, that's really the message here for Peter, is that uh, yeah, you're, you, you're a strong guy, Peter, and you've been able to do whatever you want. You're a fisherman, and you run the boat, and, and you snap your fingers, and, and the disciples jump, and, and you know, you're going to be this great leader, and all those things. But eventually, the day's going to come when somebody else is going to be calling those shots. And when they do, then that's going to result in you making the sacrifice of your life for me. And that's what, uh, that's the parenthetic statement here. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would do what? Glorify God. Yeah, that puts a whole different perspective on it, doesn't it? And so then he said to him, what? Get out of my sight. No, he said, what? Follow me. Okay, so there's the re- uh, recommissioning, if you will, of Peter, the culmination of that is that he says to Peter the very thing that he said to Peter from day one when they first met. When, when Jesus first went to all those disciples who he had called to be his apostles and who eventually would be going and taking the word out, he says, follow me. 
And that sort of brings, that's the bookend, if you will, of, of their life with him. Okay? Any questions or thoughts up to this point? Thoughts, questions, thoughts? Yeah, Brian. Do you think any of the other disciples were jealous? I mean, Peter's now being risen above the rest of them. Yeah, you know, you wonder about that sometimes uh, because there were occasions in the Gospels where they're all kind of walking around with each other and they're starting to argue about who's the greatest in the kingdom, right? You know, hey, and, and so Peter... I think this is usually how it is in, in some groups of, of men, maybe, I don't know about women, but men, where whoever is the biggest and the strongest and the most verbal and the most dominant kinds of ends up being the leader of the group, right? And so then that can foment some jealousies and some, you know, who made, who died and put you in charge, you know, kind of idea, or you're not the boss of me, you know, there, there's that kind of competition or that kind of rivalry. So there could have been, but I think that Jesus's words to Peter, which the others probably would have heard, which is when you're old, somebody else is going to dress you and take you where you don't want to go, okay, was probably a little bit of a sobering thought. Um, The thing is, is that when uh, Jesus ascended into heaven, and then we have the day of Pentecost, and now we have the, the gospel being shared, you know, Peter preaches this great sermon at Pentecost, 3,000 people joined the church. That would have been quite an assimilation issue, don't you think, uh, Ellen? You know, how are we going to involve all those people in our church now? You know, uh, all at one time, you know, Peter would have ascended to probably a status of greatness and that kind of thing, okay? And that was great for the church until Paul came along. And then when Paul came along, Paul's personality and his dominance and his uh, strength and his sense of, you know, this is the way that it ought to be. Paul was probably German. I'm sure that's the case. (laughs) And uh, And so, you know, those personalities clashed. And eventually what happened was they had to split apart and Peter and uh, uh, Peter and who what Peter and Silas, I think, went off by themselves. And then Paul and Barnabas went off by themselves. And, and the mission was accomplished, right? The, the gospel was shared, but um, those personalities never really did work it out with each other. Yeah, Bob. I think there's a little bit of that in the next question Peter asks about John. That's coming up, right? And we'll see that. Let's, that's a wonderful. Thank you for inviting me into that perfect uh, moment there. Excellent. Ed, excellent segue. See, this is the rhythm. I've missed this for all of December is uh, I just knew that something was missing in my life. All right. Well, let's go to, let's go to verse, uh, verse 20. All right. The, on uh, the last page, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. Who is that? Yeah, it, it, there, there's been clues to that all along, but that's just John's way of kind of going, I'm loved more than you are, okay? <laughs> yes, 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 we know. John, I'm sure John was younger, and that's kind of what the youngers always have to say to the older ones. That's just how they do it. Okay, so this is the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, is who's going to betray you? So we remember back to the, to the Last Supper, that, uh, that little interaction. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? <laughs> 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 now, 
Now again, what is he, what is Peter reacting to? He's reacting to what Jesus had just said about, you know, right now you can go where you want and do what you want and be the big shot and you're in control and all that kind of thing. But the day's coming when, and you're going to be an older person and somebody else is going to lead you and somebody else is going to dress you and you're going to go where you don't want to go. And I think that hit Peter right between the eyes. And so what is the normal thing to do when you feel convicted by something that God's word has said to you about you and you know it's true, what do we do with that, Gerald? We deflect it immediately away and we say, uh, yeah, but what about her? What about him? That's what we do instantly, all right? And so I love this about Jesus. He minces no words. If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. You know, even to the very end, Peter is still, you know, don't talk to me about my faith, Lord. What about that person, right? And then he says, you must what? Follow me. Good little lesson there for us, right? Is that when the word speaks to us and convicts us, then, then what we need to do is own it in that moment and go, yes, Lord, got it, got it. But isn't that always the temptation to look at ourselves and then compare ourselves to somebody else and say, yeah, but, yeah, but. And Jesus says, ain't no yeah, but. You follow me. But because of this little parenthetical statement, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Okay, now we know, because we have the benefit of being able to look back and say, well, John didn't die in a persecution form, although he died eventually in uh, exile, which would be kind of its own, its own persecution. All right, let's see if there's any notes here that we want to mention. Yeah, I don't think... When Peter said, Lord, what about him? I don't think any of us buy into the notion that there was compassionate concern on Peter's part for, uh, for well-being. I mean, you could take it that way, but I don't think any of us would buy that because we all know exactly how we would have acted in that moment as, uh, as well. Okay, so now we get to verse 24. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Okay, first thing he says is, this is the disciple who testifies. So what's the significance of the word testify? That's a legal term. It's like, it's like John is, is being deposed in a court of law under the penalty of perjury. And he uses that word testify because remember way back, what was it like several years ago when we first started, John? Remember when that was? All right. What, what was the reason why John was writing his gospel in the first place? Who was he writing for the benefit of? Unbelieving Greeks. And unbelieving Greeks were all about, you know, what is truth? What is truth? I mean, that was, the, that was their big thing, the pursuit of truth. But in the pursuit of truth, when there are a lot of opinions about 
truth. How do you know which true is truth? I mean, we're asking that question today, aren't we? Well, how do we know? Well, well, this guy says that, and that news outlet says that, and that government guy says that, and that internet person says that. Well, how do we know what's true? See, that's the dilemma. And so what, what John is saying at the very end, he's saying that I'm the one who's testifying. I am, I am, you can depose me, you can write it down as a deposition, this is what is true. And so the, he's, he's kind of bookending it in the sense that uh, everything I've been saying to you about this Jesus, I've been there, I've seen it, I've done it, and I can tell you that this Jesus, this Messiah is the real thing. Okay, that's his point. And so then he says, Jesus did many other things as well. And so this gets kind of an interesting debate, I suppose, uh, or at least a question in, in some people's minds. Is there more to know about Jesus than what we have in the Bible? John suggests that there is. And so it gets to the issue of whether the canon that we have, are you familiar with the word canon, C-A-N-O-N? Okay. The word canon is the collection of books that we have, the collection of writings that we have in the Bible. And so some people believe that that's stashed away somewhere in the basement of the Vatican. There are some other books that talk about Jesus and talk about the early church and talk about Jesus in his early life before he was uh, baptized or before he became a, you know, a rabbi that we need to know about because we have a right to know. The public has a right to know, all right? And so some people believe that. They really believe that, that it was a conspiracy of, of uh, the early church to take books or writings of Jesus that would have been controversial and perhaps even contradictory to what we have in the canon and, and then uh, stash those away because that would be too hard for people to, you know, to, to have faith in. And so if we just can uh, sneak into the basement of the Vatican, maybe we can find what those are. All right, so what, what this is, what this is uh, dealing with is the question of whether we have an open canon or a closed canon. So Missouri Senate has never really said that we have a closed canon. It's not a, it's not a major, major deal. But what the, what the Missouri Senate, are, that's our own church body, has said is that everything we need is right there. Everything we need. Could you learn more, I suppose, about the history of, uh, of the church or history of the disciples' lives and those kinds of things? Some of that is uh, written in some of the uh, writings that's called the Apocrypha which are the writings that were written between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are some historical books in there. There's also some so-called Gospels, uh, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel, some of the other books that were written in such a way that they sort of glorify the lives of the apostles in some extraordinary ways. And so the question is, of what value would that be for our salvation? It would be of minimal or no value. So everything we need to know is right there. I suppose that is a question that will get answered when we get to heaven. Then we, that'll be one of the questions that you can ask when you're in line. You, you're, are you familiar with that line? 
By the way, have you ever thought about that, that line? That because um, there'll be no passage of time in heaven and things will be for eternity, you could truly say, I've been standing in line forever, and it actually, <laughs> it actually will be true, you know? Yeah, but the thing is, you won't care because you'll be in heaven where there's no weeping and gnashing of teeth, so it's just uh, like, like the perfect thing. All right, very good. Well, guess what? Yay! We finished, John. Okay, very good. All right, so what we're going to do next week is... Uh, I've been working on this uh, little series uh, during January. We'll work on it uh, uh, for re regarding reconciliation. And so that, uh, just to share this with you a little bit, is because we have a couple minutes, is again, I've been really attentive to the tenor and the tone of the passions and the convictions that people feel about all the things that we're dealing with in COVID and politics and social justice and, and how come the world isn't a better place to live and, you know, all the stuff that goes on in people's lives. And I get it that we feel the importance of sharing that with each other, but I've been really concerned about the tone in which that's happening, particularly within uh, the Christian church and in, and in some ways specifically in our church. I think that some of the ways that we have expressed ourselves on social media, and, and I get it that, you know, when you're typing away and you hit send, you know, you feel like, mm, did one for the kingdom there. And, and yet, at the same time, there's no repair of it, right? So that was part of what motivated me to get into this idea that I do think that we, we have to figure out a better way to express ourselves in those things um, with our convictions at the same time that we're aware that when we trample on people, we got to repair that as well. And so how to do that? I, I'm convinced more than ever that people do not know how to do that. At least that's the position I take, is that if you're not doing it, it's because you don't know how to do it. So we're going to talk about how to do it. And then once... Uh, once people know how to do it, then we're going to remind each other to practice it. Okay? So that's really the idea of, of reconciliation. It certainly involves forgiveness, but it also involves uh, restoration of trust and uh, a working relationship with each other. And then what we'll do, that'll be a really nice segue from that into, um, into Revelation. We'll talk about end times. Um, we'll talk about the book itself. It's get into the book itself. But we'll also do a kind of an overview of what uh, different churches believe about uh, what's coming up in the end times and that kind of thing. Okay, does that sound like an okay thing? Now, some of you I know are in the men's Bible class with Pastor Coleman and then the ladies, and you guys are also doing Revelation. So think of me as your second opinion, okay? <laughs> uh, we'll just... We'll think of it that way because, again, you know, Patrick Goldman, he has his kind of way of doing things, and I kind of have my way, you know, just so no one it confuses the two, right? Um, and so it's going to take... It's going to take him like three weeks to get through it, and it'll take us three years. So, you know, that'll, that'll, just, be, that'll just be the difference there. Okay? So I'm looking forward to that. I think it'll be, I think we'll have some uh, fun and revelation. Uh, fun and revelation don't really actually go together, but we're going to make it. We're going to make it that way. Anyway. Okay, well, let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for 
our time together. Thank you for watching over us and being with us uh, during this strange time of, uh, of 2020, and now we're in, into 21. Uh, Lord, thank you for the blessing that the Gospel of John has, has been to us, as it reminds us that uh, there's, so, there's so much competition in the world today for, for what is true and what is truth. And, and some people have just given up on truth altogether and say it doesn't even exist. But we know, Lord, that it does. And we know that the real truth and the real sense of what is true is in your word. And that your word points us to Jesus. And that in Jesus we have life. And that life that we have makes a difference in this life for us. But, but even, even better, the life that's to come. So, Lord, I pray that you would, uh, as you have blessed us with that, and, and as we move into uh, studying uh, reconciliation and then, and then the book of Revelation, Lord, uh, in February, I pray that you would continue to remind us that your promises are good no matter what the world says, and that uh, we can hold to those promises in joy and in faithfulness, and we can find the comfort and assurance that we need for this life as well as the joy in sharing that life with others. So watch, us, uh, watch over us this week, dear Lord. Be with us until we're together again. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room. Here at Messiah Lutheran Church, our mission statement is sharing his light. That means sharing the light that is Jesus Christ and telling others about his gospel. If you want to join us in that mission, please share this podcast with someone that may want to come and better know the light of Jesus. Use one of our past episodes as a starting point to start a discussion with someone, or use a past series as a personal Bible study or devotional for your family or small group. If we've given any value to you at all, consider leaving this podcast a rating and review on iTunes. That will help us climb the iTunes rankings so we may better spread the reassuring good news of Jesus Christ and continue to share his light with anyone willing to listen. Thank you again so much for listening, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.